Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to the travel writer and now novelist Nick Hunt. His debut is Red Smoking Mirror. We talk about why writing felt a lot like travelling, also how he blended experience and factual history into fiction, and why something that he was always told about writers actually started to happen to him. I'd heard before novelists saying, oh, and then, you know, this character started doing this and I didn't expect, or this person popped up and the novel starts misbehaving and doing things that you didn't, the writer didn't expect. And I think maybe I'd never entirely believed that. It always sounded like this kind of lovely romantic image where the muse kind of takes over and, you know, the, the, the author starts losing control. But that's what happened with Red Smoking Mirror. It's all on the way in a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along to the show. This is Writer's Routine, where we take a look through an author's working day. We see how they plan their life, their work and their space to get stuff done, to give them the best chance of getting that idea down onto the page. Uh, My name is Dan Simpson. Thank you so much for listening. And I'm very excited. Our sponsor for this week's show is Plotter. Now, if you missed the fantastic offer uh, we had with Plotter earlier on in the year, well, you can make the most of it now. They are back supporting us, powering our show like it can power your writing. Plotter is a writing tool that does what the title says. It, It plots. It helps you plan your books the way that you think. It lets you outline faster, organise smarter, and really, really it can help you make the most of everything to turbocharge your productivity. If you're a very visual writer, when you open it up, it's got something perfect for you. There is a digital corkboard right there, colour-coded, you've got your timeline, you've got your notes, your details on your characters and places, so you can swap, you can chop and change just so simply. It's so easy to find everything that you need. It's almost as if a notebook on your screen that you don't need to cross out or or rub out with. You can just move it in whatever way you see fit. It allows you to track all the details of your plot at a scene level and switch and swap them however you like. Plotter is a software that helps you spend more time writing and less time worrying about everything else. And I think that as writers, we get sucked up into the window dressing 
of everything that we need to write and sometimes we forget that it's just us and our ideas and words on a page. Well, Plotter helps take care of everything else. It deals with all of the back end so you can focus on getting those words down, which is what you're there to do. Now, the best way for you to see what it does and how stunning it looks and how helpful it can be is by getting to plotter.com and taking a look around. And while you're there, you can get 10% off the software with this show, 10% off it with a writer's routine. So to get the deal, use the code that is in the episode notes of this show and head to go.plotter.com slash routine. This week on the show, we're chatting to Nick Hunt. Nick has worked as a journalist and travel writer, publishing travel logs outlandish, where the wild winds are, and walking the woods in the water. And to a degree, they always got in the way of his novel writing, something he's always wanted to do. And, well, like anyone with a fantastic job, uh, he, si- he fell into it. Did you ever feel that? People that have these brilliant jobs that you want, like being a travel writer... It's never planned. No one ever seeks out to do it. They just fall into it, really. He was able to travel the world, finding stories and experiences to share. And we talk about that. We chat through how he got into it and what it taught him about novel writing. His debut is out now. It's called Red Smoking Mirror. And there's a lot going on in it. It's an alternate history set in 1521 in the Mexican city of Tenochtitlan, in which... Islamic Spain never fell to the Christians and Andalus launched a voyage of discovery to the new Maghreb. Um, There's a lot going on in it, if that was all a bit gibberish to you. It's all kind of packed out in the novel and through our chat. It's a what-if type of novel. We talk about the different processes of writing a travel memoir and a novel how they differ, how they're the same. Also, why it surprised him when he was writing to find that he wasn't in control of everything. How he blended experiences of travelling into fiction. And if you think that we've been nerdy about fonts and page setups before, uh, just wait for Nick's view of it. We reach uncharted territory to ground we have never set foot in before (laughs) in that regard, which I guess makes sense because Nick is a travel writer. So let's get straight to it then with the author Nick Hunt, kicking it off with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. Right, well, I write partly at home and partly at a desk space in a sort of shared workspace. Um, But I'm at home at the moment. I've got a little corner of a room that has... um, Uh, some of my books and some other books that I'm kind of reading currently on the shelves above and a couple of bits of artwork and it's uh, got a window nearby so it's just quite a kind of cozy space. So this is when you're at home you've got the the books around you it's nice and cozy is there there anything practical around you I know that you write travel books a lot of the time, so maps, maybe notes on where you've been, moving into the novel, maybe plot points on post-it notes. Is there anything like that? Yeah, I've got a drawer full of maps, um, a lot of which were used in in writing various travel books, so they're all kind of torn and stained and rain-sodden um, and probably completely unusable now, but I like keeping them around to remember some of those journeys I went on. Um, There's a compass, which is good because I'm, as a travel writer, I've got a terrible sense of direction and I'm constantly getting lost. So it's good for me to have that around at all times. 
I've got a piece of um, obsidian of uh, that black volcanic rock, highly polished, which is of relevance to the novel that we're going to be talking about. It's actually part of the title of that novel. And then I've got some um, something that was very useful uh, visually for the book uh, that that came out recently is um, a, mur- a reproduction of a mural by the Mexican painter Diego Rivera showing the Aztec city of Tenochtitlan uh, in all its complexity and glory. When you were working on a novel for the first time, how much did you need to 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 rethink like the plotting and the planning of what you would normally do for a travel book? Did you at all think that you needed to properly prescribe what you were writing when? Did that mean that you needed some serious thorough notes and plot points to help you on your way? Yeah, the process was completely different because when I get back from a journey that I want to write about, it's really a question of transcribing uh, everything that's in my notebooks. That's the other thing I didn't mention that's on my desk is lots of old uh, notebooks, pocket-sized books that I carry with me when I travel, uh, and they're all full of um, slightly illegible scribbles. But it means that I come back with loads of material, and really the difficulty is working out which of that material is useful and which isn't, um, and sculpting it, really. It feels more like editing than than writing, to be honest, because I've got everything. All the content is there. With the novel, that was completely different. I started out with nothing but ideas. And so I went through, I mean, a lot of phases with this novel of failing, to be honest. I gave up on it twice. The whole thing, I mean, I wrote the the, the main body of it in a year, in 2020, but it was seven years of, of uh, attempts before then. And, and kind of giving up on it and deciding that it was beyond me. So in that time, I've really lost count of the number of approaches I tried from, you know, flow charts and coming to work one day thinking, great, I've got, I've got a pack of post-it notes, you know, that's going to solve all my problems. So they're all different colors and I've got different colored pens and I'll stick them up on walls and on pieces of paper. And none of that really worked for me. Uh, I think I, I, my approach to writing is quite intuitive, or certainly it was for this, this novel. And I found that without having, without a solid base, um, which became the kind of opening pages, it took me years to, to get those opening pages fixed. And without that, I found everything else almost impossible to conceive of. I, I've often thought of kind of, writing creatively for me it's a bit like building a you know building something and if it's not on solid foundations the whole thing I just don't have confidence to go on with it so I did try many ways of kind of building the scaffolding and putting all this kind of structural support in place in terms of you know like a a plan for what the the plot was going to do but until I had that solid foundation nothing really worked. How much of your approach to writing the novel was influenced by your approach to well traveling and then writing about your experiences because when when you're when you're travel writing it's all done after the fact you're you're out there you're exploring you don't really know what the story is going to be and then you're trying to craft a narrative based on experiences you've had and i imagine 
it's almost completely counter to the way most people write a novel where they have a quite a solid idea for what the book is going to be, whereas that's flipped reversed for you. Yeah, I'd say there's there's kind of two answers to that. And one is that what really helped me is realizing this work of fiction, this alternate history sort of fantasy was also in a strange way a type of travel book too because it was drawing on places that I'd been to, Mexico, Morocco and Spain um, and spent a lot of time in in my early to mid-20s. Um, and that's, you know, I'm, I'm 42 now, so that's quite a long time ago. So all of those memories are a little bit distorted and hazy. But I found the, the fact that I'd been there and kind of absorbed some of the atmospheres and sensations and remembered the landscapes and the feel of the places made it a kind of travel book. And the other thing I'd say is that in terms of the structure, um, I didn't really think about this actually until after the book was done. But when I make not a piece of travel writing, but when I do the journey itself, my approach has always been to have a loose structure so I need to know where I'm starting, where I'm ending, and some of the things on the way, some places to stay, some places I want to visit, maybe a couple of people I want to meet. But I keep everything else quite flexible and loose. And that's where the kind of interesting stuff comes in. That's where I can accept an invitation to go somewhere I'd never heard of, or I can take a different path that looks slightly more interesting on a whim and see where it leads. So it's like having the bones of the journey, but everything else will be kind of filled in at the time. Well, it felt similar with the with the novel in that I had this kind of beginning. I had an idea of where I wanted it to go. I had a couple of things that I wanted to to see or, or experience or tell on the way, but I didn't know beat by beat what was going to happen. So I think actually the experience of writing the novel wasn't like the experience of travel writing, but it was a bit like the experience of traveling itself. You mentioned that you split your, your work time between writing at home and heading off to a, a workspace that you have. What, what dictates where you'll be? Um, I think it's, kind of, to be honest, it's the boring practical things of life. It's like if there's stuff that that needs doing in the day that isn't you know as a freelancer i'm constantly juggling things um so really i go to the workspace if i know i've got a clean kind of day or half a day of of just sitting down and doing one thing i find it very useful because as a freelancer you know i'm constantly kind of doing an article here a bit there editing something somewhere else trying to do a book proposal here and it's good to it's a good way of focusing is just going to a desk and telling myself, I'm not going to look at emails. I'm not going to reply to that person. I'm just going to do this one task and try and finish it or do as much as I can. We get quite nerdy. Niche is probably the better word, but nerd nerdy is really what it is. Um, people are very, we're very interested in what you're writing on, like the software and also what font you use. <laughs> brilliant yeah i'm happy to happy to get get nerdy about this i work on well i mean i do a lot of 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 longhand writing um when i'm taking notes so that's important and that is for the travel books 
and I'm constantly scribbling in a small, I, a, one of those books that isn't a moleskin, but is the cheaper version. So I always go for them. I'm kind of, moleskins, I think, are hideously over-fetishized and overpriced. But there's lots of other books that look and feel exactly the same. So I normally have one of them in my pocket and a pen. And then when it comes to the actual, you know, the, the kind of craft of doing the writing, um, I work on Google Docs just it's as good as anything else. And it's what I've been using for a, a few years. Um, and I, I write in, in Georgia. Georgia font is my preferred font. I don't know why, but whenever I'm kind of doing anything, you know, if I'm editing something, I'll change it to Georgia. I just like the way it looks and feels. I, you know, it's got it's a nice serif font. It looks kind of quite, quite literary and classic. And the other thing I do, and this is really nerdy, and actually I, I, did, I started doing this with when I was really not not doing well with the novel, and it just seemed like I had a thousand ideas um, on this kind of endless document. I found a really easy trick to make it feel like you're writing a book rather than a than a Word document or a Google Doc, and it's to change the the page size to B five which is the format of a, you know, of a paper book. So it means the margins are a bit wider. The text is a bit thinner um, and there's fewer words to the line. And it, it just has, has that trick of making it look like a book rather than a document. And honestly, I found that really helpful in kind of tricking my brain into thinking I was doing something better than it seemed to be in terms of, you know, producing something. Yeah, it's one of the things I've learned chatting to a fair amount of authors through the years is so 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 much of it is countering this imposter syndrome, right? It's you know you can write, but it's almost tricking you to think you're writing a book. So that makes perfect sense. And Georgia is a fabulous choice. It's very stately. It feels like a very important font. It's very travel writing-esque, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. Stately is a good word. I mean, this novel took shape over a, a number of years, and I'd say there was no kind of regular day in most of that time. But the the, the time it really came together and when it started working was 2020. It was COVID time, pandemic time. Um, we had quite a difficult year because my, my wife was uh, got COVID early and was very ill, very ill for a long time. Um, and so, you know, we were very, I know everyone was homebound. We were particularly homebound uh, for 2020. And it was that, I didn't remember that kind of amazing spring. It was, it was weirdly doom filled, but absolutely beautiful. It was like the loveliest spring I could remember it was just perfect and all the flowers were out and it just seemed, yeah, nature was really um, kind of compensating. Um, we just moved into a house in Bristol with a really lovely garden with a cherry tree. So it's very green. And I found working in the garden helped. <laughs> and it was just that thing of being outside. So I bring a desk out, run an extension cord kind of through the kitchen and it also had the advantage of being in the garden, the, the Wi-Fi, we didn't really get the signal there. So I was free of the internet, which was probably very helpful. 
um, wouldn't be checking the news, which was not not an enjoyable experience at any time, but particularly in that year. Um, so I found that working first thing early morning is good for me. Uh, we have a dog, so I'd normally take the dog for a, a walk or a run, like early, um, and then just sit down, not open emails, not do any of that stuff, and just try and the timing varied. Sometimes it was an hour, sometimes it was two hours, but just having a, a dedicated period of time where my brain hadn't quite woken up yet and started worrying itself, but it was a, you know, freer time to kind of just put words on the page. And it seems like early morning and kind of nighttime creatively are good for me in terms of writing and the middle of the day is not so good creatively, but better for editing and doing all the kind of bitty stuff that you have to do around the actual act of writing, you know, all the, the normal life things and other small jobs that I had to fill in. But yeah, early mornings, um, I think still, if I kind of have an idea to, to tease out or experiment with, um, it just means that my brain isn't running on all alert yet and it, it's there's a nice sense you know early when other people haven't woken up necessarily and the day hasn't quite started it feels like stolen time it feels like it's got a slightly kind of magic feeling to it what would make a good writing day for you were you working to a word count was it just a case of we'll see how we get on i think it was when everything was flowing like that a thousand words a day felt felt pretty good. Um, a thousand, and I write. Um, I'm not very good at rough drafting. I wish I was. I really wish I was because I think that's probably a much freer way to produce something and try something out. But I go quite slowly. Each word has to kind of be in place before I can move on to the next line. And obviously, I do go back and edit, but um, I have to feel happy with the. Tone is very important for me, not not just ideas, but having a sense of tone and atmosphere in what I'm writing. Um, so, yeah, a thousand words of, of, of well-placed words felt like a good, a good day. And then I know there's lots of writers that have, I think Graham Greene was meant to have done this, that thing where you leave, you don't fully complete an idea. I know he had a quite a strict word count. But it's nice to leave something for the next day or the next session that is a little bit easy. So you're not starting from scratch. You know, if you're kind of finished before the end of a chapter or before the end even of a paragraph that's going really well, because it just gives you that little incentive to sit down and go, oh, I can pick this up and just carry on with it and then go on to the hard stuff later. Yeah, I know Philip Pullman um, did something similar I've heard him say that he would finish a page or whatever he was working on and make sure he wrote the first sentence of the next page just beginning that idea to make it much easier for yourself the next day now that routine that you've described is something that uh, I guess was forced upon you because you had the freedom of days during lockdown when there was no end in sight to a degree. 
w- there was this glorious spring. So you were almost at your leisure as much as one could be during a lockdown. You're at your leisure to figure things out. How much has that continued into what you might be writing and now and how you, you've planned your days since? Um, it is, well, it's got, yeah, life's got m- more complicated in lots of ways. So it, it's harder to have that, you know, that simplicity and that sense of just, well, nothing else is going on uh, for sure. Yeah. There's a lot more kind of juggling to do. So it has got harder in that, in that sense. I mean, not in a bad way. I wouldn't wish myself back to that. Uh, it was a very unusual period of time for everyone. But um, now it t- it tends to be like I'll just have to kind of devote a day to writing something new, something I'm working on, um, another day to editing something else I have to do, another day to kind of starting a couple of articles that I've got deadlines for. Now... I am sat here with four Michael Palin travel diaries on my shelf, um, read much more, and it seems to me, we, I promise we will get to Red Smoking Mirror in just a little bit, and this this is, I assume, a question that you've answered quite a lot, but being a travel writer is one of those elusive jobs that so many people want, but no one quite knows how to crack. No one knows how to to get close to to earning money by traveling the world. Um, Would you be kind of kind enough to just run us through how it all happened for you? Yeah, it happened completely accidentally, really. I was always writing and I was always writing fiction, actually, before nonfiction. So it's odd it's taken me this long to write a novel. And then was kind of doing tinkering, thinking I wanted to be a journalist and and trying to get into that. Um, But really, I always had this ambition or dream from reading the books of Patrick Lee Fermor to walk his 1933-34 route from the Hook of Holland to Istanbul. Um, I loved these these three books, the first of which, A Time of Gifts, which I read when I was 18. And it wasn't necessarily going to be for a book. It was one of those things that I started approaching the age of 30 and realizing, oh, that's one of those things that I might actually never do unless I do it. I need to do it now. You know, now. Um, so I did that journey for the love of it and kind of crowdfunded it, wrote blogs and um, stuff on the way. And then it turned into a book after that. And there was interest in the book and it got picked up by a publisher and really, you know, I, a lot of luck was involved in that kind of stumbling. I didn't know what I was doing, had no agent, didn't really know what an agent was, didn't know how the publishing business worked at all. I just managed to get into get get the book into the right hands um, and was taken forward by that. And then that travel book gave me the opportunity to write another one, another one. So I kind of found myself becoming known as a travel writer and loving it, you know, and, and loving the journeys and loving the writing and being very proud of those books, but also something in the back of my head thinking, what about the fiction? You know, I was writing um, short stories, uh, a lot of them for a publication called Dark Mountain, which I now co-edit and co-direct. Um, and that was one of the first 
places that got my fiction, these slightly strange, spiky, um, not you know beautifully formed stories that I didn't really know what to do with and didn't seem to fit into any literary magazines that I knew about. Dark Mountain was the first place that, that understood what I was doing and liked it. So that gave me a, a huge boost um, in the fiction, but it was happening very much kind of alongside the travel writing, but much sort of, you know, it, I didn't have a, um, a big publisher interested in, in fiction. So it's been great to be able to kind of bring these things together a bit now. Uh, just on one last on the travel writing, what, when you've, you've done, you've recreated this walk uh, across Europe um, from the Hook of Holland out towards Istanbul, and then that becomes something, and then you're offered more writing work. And what what was the pressure there as as a as a, as a travel writer, particularly to to think of more journeys that you can do and write well? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because I, I mean, the first journey, as I said, just happened to work, and then after that, I thought, well, maybe I've done my my thing now. I've had my idea. Um, you know, often it's that way with the first book, isn't it? It's like that's kind of what your life has led towards. And then what? how do you do another one? So the second book was really, it was a kind of odd one because the first was following the footsteps of someone who had walked that way 70-odd years before. And the second book, I had this idea of following wind, following these named winds of Europe, the Mistral, the Fern, the Bora, um, that blow across the continent and, you know, affect all kinds of things from psychology to mythology to architecture, agriculture. The course of history often is sort of determined by wind. And I think generally in in travel, um, if there's a kind of broad trend that's happened over the past, I don't know, 10, 20 years, um, it's been more conceptual people are less, publishers are less interested, I think, in, oh, I went to this place and did this journey and now I'm going to write a book about it. They want, you know, they want a hook. They want a personal connection that you have to that landscape or to that culture or, you know, the history of the place that's informed your history, that kind of thing. And if you don't have that, they're looking for a kind of a, a more conceptual idea at the, at the heart of it so the winds was a kind of you know broad concept i don't have a deep personal connection to wind um, but i was interested and then the third travel book again was even more conceptual really it's this idea of landscapes that exist sort of somehow out of place so the only desert in europe which is in spain europe's only desert um, the Cairngorms in Scotland, which is the only example of alpine Arctic tundra on mainland Britain, this little patch of the Arctic. And it was interesting because that third book, Outlandish, felt like a bit of a stepping stone to the novel in a strange way in that I was thinking of these landscapes as imaginative portals. So it was very much a travel book, but it also felt like a work of imagination in that I'd go to the, you know, the steps of Hungary, the other, another place that interested me. And that was an imaginative and conceptual link to the steps of Mongolia, Central Asia, you know, that history, that culture, that kind of mythology coming into Europe. 
So I was using landscapes as ways of traveling much further in imagination. And I think that was a good preparation for the novel in being prepared to take the next imaginative step and kind of go straight purely into something that was um, sort of based in fantasy rather than reality. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We'll be back with more from Nick in just a sec. If you're enjoying the show, you can always support us on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash writers routine is where you need to go. Just a few quid a month really helps us out. It helps us keep bringing you these chats with the best authors around as often as we can. Authors that have done so much, so many wide and varied project, so many different authors of different genres too. I, I try and bring you them every week there's kind of a lot going on on my back end of things it's a one man operation so if you would like to support me in doing that well get involved on the patreon become a backer over there for that you get merch there is uh, bonus content there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show you can make it happen it's really easy and i know that times are tight at the moment so i really appreciate anything that you can send our way to become part of the writing community that we've got on the Patreon where we chat to each other, where we share ideas, uh, we talk through books that we're reading and all of that, little things that we've learned along the way. To get involved, to help us, to make that happen, please do pledge to back the show at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back into it then with Nick Hunt talking about his new novel, Red Smoking Mirror. In this part, we discuss how he incorporated elements of fact and his own experiences into his novel writing. Also, we discuss La Malinche, uh, a woman whose legend has inspired so much in the last 500 years uh, from her very important part in conquests uh, back in the 1500s. And uh, she's still being spoken about today in, in, in novels and in travel memoirs. And we discussed with Nick how he reimagined her for this book. And we get back into it, chatting about Red Smoking Mirror and the first idea that he had for the book. It was um, a, a period of a year in my sort of mid-twenties where I spent six months in, well, no, nine months in Mexico and Guatemala, but mainly Mexico. 
and then slightly kind of randomly went straight to Morocco after that. This was after university. I was, you know, learning Spanish, traveling, being freewheeling and went to Morocco, which was an incredible culture shock. I mean, the, the first and only time I've really experienced what culture shock is when you feel like you've gone mad and woken up in a hallucination. And then from there, I went to Spain, spent time in Andalusia, where obviously there's a very deep Moorish Islamic heritage visible everywhere. And somehow those three places, the novel is really the kind of the Venn, the, in the section in the middle of the Venn diagram of those three places and those three cultures that I experienced at a time of my life when I was very, everything was very vivid and exciting and I was very open to, you know, experience in that way you, you can be when you're traveling. And then the thing that stuck with me was this, I went to Granada which, you know, is a fabulous, amazing city. Um, and heard about this, the pass of the Moors last sigh, which is where the last Moorish king of Granada is supposed romantically to have looked back at the city he'd lost when the Christians, you know, finally surrendered the city, ending 800 years of Islamic rule in, in Andalusia. And the date, the date 1492, uh, was very important the year that, as we all know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and Spanish ships reached um, the Americas. But that was also the year in which um, that city was given up and, and the Moors left Spain. And I was always just really struck by how much that felt like one of those kind of hinge moments of history. Not only did you know Europe go to America, but Islamic Europe um, in the Iberian Peninsula ceased to exist, you know, as a kind of organized thing. Um, and so this, this kind of the synchronicity really started kind of gnawing at me. I just thought there was something very interesting about those two things happening in the same year, not very far apart. And then the novel came out of that initially via a short story. I just thought it would be fun to kind of, Oh, what if, what if that didn't happen? What if the Moors had got to the Americas instead of the Spanish? What if the Reconquista of Spain had never happened and this sort of Islamic golden age of the Middle Ages had continued into, you know, the early modern period? So it was really a pure thought experiment that I thought might be quite fun. So I wrote a short story about it that I've you know, sort of don't even have any more. I can't remember what happened to it, but that set the idea in place. Now, it, it, it's a, that's a grand idea, traveling back 500 years to, to, to have this thought experiment of, of what if, which is such a brilliant place to start a novel. But you need a plot. You need a through line. How are you generating that from as this Venn diagram meets, as you say, in the middle of what if these things in history had not happened the way that they have, you need characters, a protagonist, you need somewhere for things to go and lead. Where did you start asking questions to, to, to give you a plot? Yeah, that, I mean, that took a long time. And one of the reasons it did is because I did so much research into, you know, the Spanish invasion and colonization of Mexico 
and I got very bogged down in that research um, and in the historical, you know, the story of what actually did happen. And it was confusing. You know, I read Aztec accounts of the Spanish arriving as well as the Spanish's own, Spanish people's own accounts of encountering that culture um, and got very lost in the amount of information I had. I didn't have a character and that took a very long time. I had a kind of, you know, I had a figure um, who did become the, the main protagonist of this novel, um, a Jewish merchant from Moorish Al-Andalus, who, who leads the first ships across the sea, finds himself in Mexico. Uh, and I sort of had a vague idea of what I wanted him to be like or a character that I could sympathize with and imagine the internal life of. But he didn't really have a voice he was very hazy and kind of amorphous, not enough to, to lead it through. The thing that made it click was his wife, who was based upon a real-life historical figure called Lama Lynche, who I could talk about later. She's fascinating, but an indigenous woman who in real life was the interpreter and mistress to Hernan Cortez um, in my novel. She's married to Eli, my protagonist, and she became the interesting force. Eli is quite a kind of slightly hapless, um, essentially well-meaning man who's kind of doing his best to try and keep this balance between different cultures. But his wife, Malanala, she's the interesting person. She's the one that makes things happen, and she's got a lot more going on. So it was the dynamic between those two Finally, when they when they met and started speaking to each other, everything began to work. And I know it sounds like a huge cliche that nothing, you know, you need a character. Uh, but I, it took me a long time to get there. But when I had those characters in place, then everything else kind of worked around them. How much thought did you give to what you knew you wanted the novel to be? I will quite often speak to more genre fiction writers, for instance a crime writer, quite often it's prescribed what a crime novel needs to be, a whodunit. We need to have some resolution at the end. Whereas with something more amorphous and free-flowing like this, did you have any idea of kind of how it would pan out, what would happen, what what you wanted this novel to do and to say? Yeah, I had, I had a, a, a broad idea of where I saw it going. And what I was interested in, the story I was interested in telling. But again, like that kind of, that way of traveling, everything was a bit flexible and not plotted out. And what happened was that, you know, you you kind of hear, I'd, I'd heard before novelists saying, oh, and then, you know, this character started doing this and I didn't expect, or this person popped up and the novel starts misbehaving and doing things that you didn't, the writer didn't expect. And I think maybe I'd never entirely believed that. It always sounded like this kind of lovely romantic image where the muse kind of takes over and, you know, the, the, the author starts losing control. But that's what happened with Red Smoking Mirror, to my absolute delight. You know, imagination has started doing what it's supposed to do. And so there are a few things that happened in the novel that I didn't expect until... I realized I was about to write them down. 
certain objects appearing in places where they weren't expected that that shift the whole course of the novel you know characters that I'd put in as almost as a kind of background suddenly that character becoming quite important and and leading it in a certain way that I didn't necessarily expect so yeah it, it was a a marvel to me really that that fiction does actually do that and I wasn't in control of everything the novel kind of did what it wanted to do and at a certain point I learned to trust that and that's kind of became the novel as it is now that wasn't what I set out to write um, when I first had the idea by any means. And this is a novel of exploration really because of your uh, experience as a travel writer um, how much thought did you have to did you did you give and and I guess pressure to put on yourself to make sure that part of it was particularly on point that this this sense of d- describing where you are what's happening bringing these landscapes of history and place to life so it was you know informed I guess by three three streams one of which was what i remembered from my travels um 15 17 odd years ago the second was the research i'd done all the reading much of which was the kind of bloody psychopathic accounts of conquistadors massacring massacring people um and then there was lots of kind of visual imagery from people like Diego Rivera, from contemporary indigenous artists who had depicted what they saw. So I had that uh, going on as well. But then the the key thing, I think the only way this novel got written was at a certain point, I remembered that I was writing fiction and allowed myself to make certain choices which were not historically accurate, which were my own invention. Um, and that was that was very important because up until then I'd really been, you know, sort of writing this alternate history, but it was so, so it was so based in history that apart from the kind of identities of the protagonists, there wasn't a lot different in the way these cultures were relating and interacting to each other. So I had to make some, you know, artistic license choices of just going, well, okay, it didn't happen that way, uh, but I'm, it's going to be this way in, in what I'm writing because this is a work of imagination and I can do that. And that was very liberating. So let's talk about Lama Lynche then. Um, uh, how, how is the process of taking someone actual, actually from history and warping their narrative into yours? What, what was the process behind that? Well, in a sense... I mean, I kind of felt like this was okay to do for a start because she's been reinterpreted in so many different ways by so many different generations. She was the the woman that led, really led the Spanish to the heart of the Aztec Empire and interpreted between um, the Mayan language that she'd learned while being a slave to a Mayan group and Nahuatl, the language of the Aztec. She was the kind of linguistic missing link between those language indigenous languages that the Spanish needed to learn. And without her, it's highly unlikely that Cortes would have got as far as he did. I mean, it, it probably wouldn't have happened at all. She was the, she was the voice that kind of enabled him to 
lie and cheat and inveigle his way um, into the heart of the Aztec Empire and eventually bring it down. And she's been seen as the great betrayer in in Mexican culture. She's to indigenous people, to Mexican nationalists. She's the person that sold out her country. There's a word, uh, malinchista, in Mexican Spanish that means somebody who sells out Mexico. But she's also been seen as a feminist icon because she was clearly a woman of enormous influence and power at the same time as having been a slave, almost certainly raped, and under the, you know, in the clutches of the Spanish. But she was able to use her position to do kind of huge things, and she clearly had a lot of influence. And so she's kind of been reinterpreted differently by Marxists and socialists and nationalists, and everyone seems to have their own take on who they thought she was. She's even entered Mexican folklore as La Llorona, the weeping woman who wanders Mexico crying for her lost children. So I felt like another version of her was, uh, you know, was, was kind of part of this tradition of reinventing her again and again. So in my novel, she is, I've given her a new name, Malinala, which I just kind of made up, but based on, on versions of her indigenous name that we have from the historical record. Uh, and she, in, in my version, she, I mean, she's as complex as what we know of the real life, her real life counterpart. She's Eli's wife. What interested me about both of them, and I think why they're a couple, why they're married, and why they're hopefully interesting, is that they are both characters between different worlds. Eli is from Al-Andalus. He's from the kind of the, the Moorish, you know, the Moorish state, but he's Jewish. So he has a different kind of designation in society. He's not majority Muslim, but he's still regarded as a person of the book, which is what um, Moors called Christians and Jews who believed in the same, you know, religious text, essentially believed in the, in one God were monotheists but were kind of had to pay certain taxes and were not equal, but were able to achieve quite high levels of status within that structure. So he's between two things and he's also really found his home in Aztec Mexico. He likes it there. He's fascinated by the culture. He he feels a sense of freedom there that he didn't have at home. So he's a kind of bridge between these cultures. And so is Malinala, she's an ethnic Nahua, uh, but speaks the Mayan language and also speaks Nahuatl. She's within the kind of the, the, the power structure now of the Aztec society, but she is not Mexico. She's not she's not an Aztec herself. So yeah, these two two characters kind of are between different things, and I think that's why they're together. And that is it for this week's episode of Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Nick Hunt for coming on the show. That new book is Red Smoking Mirror. It is out right now. Uh, We are back next week with another fantastic author on the podcast. In the meantime, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Make the most of that brilliant 10% off 
uh, with Plotter. They are sponsoring the show for a little while. If you missed the deal earlier on, it is back so you can make the most of it right until Christmas. 10% off Plotter. It's a writing tool that does everything that you need so you can just focus on the words on the page. Get to go.plotter.com slash routine. You can also get in touch. Use the contact page at writersroutine.com and drop us a follow on Twitter too. We are at writerspod and we're on TikTok as well if you love your book talk. Uh, Writers Routine over there. And I will see you next week with a brand new author on the show. Until then, bye. Bye.